I suppose uh, you're probably familiar uh, by now um, that uh, since Max Weber, I suppose, uh, the uh, Western city has been seen as a centre of secular modernity. Um, and that's linked, of course, to the notion of uh, or debates around um, the secularisation process, which, uh, as we'll see today, is a highly contested process uh, and um, long uh, debate, but uh, it, um, I suppose it's informed uh, a general assumption that uh, Western uh, Westernisation is bound up with urbanisation in the context of the Western city, um, and is particularly linked around what we'll see today um, the, uh, disputes over um, buildings, uh, where the urban planner becomes the central figure. Um, if you remember, uh, Max Weber talked about bureaucracy as a process. So, uh, of the growth of legal rational action, um, uh, which therefore uh, sidelines uh, religious uh, um, rationalities and, and religious um, action. Uh, not to say, of course, they believe that they will disappear, but um, I suppose it fed into the assumption that um, religion would be increasingly privatised. Um, uh, its presence in the public sphere would be increasingly marginal as um, um, the world became increasingly demystified. Anyway, um, I think uh, what we've seen uh, over the last um, 40 years in Western cities uh, is questioning this uh, very long-established uh, assumption. Um, and we see it through a variety of um, debates about the ways in which global migration uh, has been changing Western cities. Um, so in the late 80s, early 90s, you had a whole flowering of um, books on uh, global modernities, globalization. Um, I, in fact, uh, edited, um, for example, a book called Living the Global City, which I think is one of the first to try and link these very grand debates to looking at um, everyday um, processes uh, in the context of London. Um, of course, bound up with debates around increasing cultural diversity in Western cities, uh, debates, more recent debates about cosmopolitanism. Um, as, as this um, series indicates, um, increasing debates about not so much globalization or the way in which globalization is linked to transnationalism. Uh, because globalization debates of the early 80s, 90s tended to uh, I think perhaps rather um, overexcitedly celebrate the end of the nation state. People like Omey and Fukuyama and things like that. Uh, clearly, the nation state is still in business, but it's reworking itself um, in uh, a reaction to an engagement with uh, these um, multicultural diversities. And uh, more recently, uh, geographers as well as um, others are engaging with uh, people like Habermas, as you probably know, Habermas is one of the great um, theorists, I suppose, of uh, communication in a secular world. And he has, of course, like everyone, uh, um, engaged with the, uh, these changes. And um, uh, in a quite influential paper, he talked about the development of a post-secular society, um, which, of course, is linked to the uh, debate by um, others, um, Casanova in the United States, Grace Taylor here, um, about whether Europe is not the leader but could be seen as the exception 
um, and therefore not the epitome of Western secularization, but actually um, arguing uh, that in some respects it could be seen as, as the exception. So these are very exciting times, uh, hopefully. Um, and what I want to do is to contextualise these broader debates in disputes uh, in London over the urban landscape. Uh, just, just then put it in context, in, in, in London, uh, London's population in 2006 was estimated to be um, heading towards 7.5 million, um, uh, speaking over 300 languages. I mean, what does that mean, of course? Uh, it's a bit of an artefact, but it does indicate the, the amazing linguistic diversity that migration has uh, wrought uh, across London. Um, and in um, questions around ethnicity, uh, uh, various people um, reported, for example, that uh, a third uh, ticked the non-white uh, group uh, box, and 42 also uh, percent claimed that they belonged to other groups other than white British. And there's a big dispute, of course, about what these categories uh, mean in the census, but they give some sense of this, uh, the ways in which uh, the white majority um, has, has to be unpicked, uh, even. Uh, as we know, in the 2001 census, the Irish said, well, we're, we're white, but we're different white from white British people. So uh, all these categories uh, are quite dyna dynamic, um, but they give some indication of uh, what, what is happening through the impact of global migration. Okay, now, um, so we're going to focus here on how this pans out in terms of uh, religion. Um, and if we... Uh, look at London uh, through the non-Christian lens. We'll obviously see that the Christian lens is still important. Um, I often discard that. But if we just focus on that for a moment, um, one of the key things was, of course, in the 1960s and 70s, as the <coughs> first wave of post-Second uh, World War migrants um, uh, um, arrived, um, as you know, people coming from the Caribbean, uh, South Asia, etc., Cyprus, etc., uh, in the 50s, 60s. Uh, one of the issues was how to uh, worship. And um, initially, people used private uh, flats. And of course, local planners said, What are you doing in these flats? There are health risks, etc. Et so there's a move uh, out of the private into the public sphere um, from the 1980s onwards. Uh, and this was made possible, of course, by <coughs> the um, decline of various public uh, buildings, uh, uh, decommissioned churches, of course, uh, but also in areas where uh, migrants were not uh, supposed to drink, uh, for example, uh, pubs became uh, de um, defunct. Um, and so all kinds of uh, public buildings were um, resacralized, if you like, for non-Christian purposes to cater for the expanding populations and demand but at the same time, as this, if you like, moving from the private into the public arena, um, uh, various uh, groups started um, campaigning <coughs> to build purpose uh, state-of-the-art buildings. In other words, uh, this is part of a, a global process, which you can see in India, and um, particularly my first uh, done in Calcutta, so uh, going around India, you see these amazing uh, temples that are sprouting up all, all over the place and as you know masjid example these um, mosques and temples become highly contested uh, centers so 
what's happening in London is part of a, uh, a general um, uh, campaign, if you like, to um, celebrate and to make prominent, um, not just through old churches and pubs, but um, buildings that celebrate the values uh, and, and the presence of um, these non-Christian religions. And of course the funding of these becomes very interesting because obviously they're funded by members of the communities themselves but of course um, they also are funded through um, 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 investors coming from Middle East and Southeast Asia and South Asia. So it becomes a very interesting example of how the global and local um, interweave. And as I say, I, I, I'm looking at this very much from a political point of view, so I'm not looking at the everyday expression of religious religiosity, but um, uh, these are very much part of a kind of global politics of affirmation of non-Christian presence in what is seen as a, um, of a Christian or certainly secular place in the West. So I think we can see this as a sacralization process. Um, by sacralization I mean, I suppose I'm using it in the Durkheimian sense, of, um, in Durkheim's language, he, rather than Weber's language, um, Durkheim talked about sacred as a place set apart and forbidden uh, except for certain professionals. Um, so you're carving out space that is surrounded, if you like, by sacred um, boundaries. Uh, that's how I'm using sacralization. Uh, but very interesting enough, um, this doesn't involve simply religious leaders. Uh, very often we, um, people approach non-Christian uh, religions in a Christian way. They say, well, you know, take me to your leader, take me to your priest, etc. Um, uh, uh, communities don't work this way. Um, mosques, for example, are run by management committees. They're not run by, by the imam. The imam employed by the mosque committee, etc. So um, they involve all kinds of like, non-religious activists, uh, political leaders, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, um, often of course uh, working transnationally uh, between country of origin and country of settlement, uh, community organisation. So it's a very interesting mixture of the narrowly defined religious and the uh, non-religious. And of course, as we know, uh, they, this building engages very much with the state. A Malaysian state is certainly very powerful, uh, despite talks about post, uh, post-nationalism. We see in these disputes the continuing power of the state to um, uh, deny or support um, these, particularly the purpose-built um, uh, religious sites that we're going to see in this talk. So, um, religious groups have to learn the rules of the game. Um, and of course, Muslims in particular have a, um, this job is made particularly difficult for them because of their suspicion directed towards them, because of, as we know, the events of 9 11 uh, and subsequent um, uh, developments, uh, people talking about Islamophobia. Um, so, for them, it's increasing. It's, it, um, often very difficult to actually uh, operate the system because of the suspicion directed against them. Um, and of course this has led uh, to debates around the retreat from multiculturalism. Some people talked about um, developments since 9-11 as um, post-multiculturalism. 
Uh, but certainly, and this is obviously, as we know, developments in the Netherlands, Denmark, etc., uh, France, Belgium, the recent debates about outlawing uh, bails in public uh, space, etc. Uh, this is part of a wider European uh, political uh, development. So, in a sense, it is often easier to get planning permission uh, before uh, the mid 90s, become increasingly a contested issue since then. Okay, um, now I want to focus on London, uh, London's East End. Um, of course, uh, for historians, it's important to remind ourselves of the continuities as well as the discontinuities, and um, uh, we can perhaps talk about those um, uh, in the discussion a bit more. But um, there's been a long tradition of viewing the East End as a, an alien place. Um, it's the other to the respectable middle-class West London. That's the like Jez and I come from, down Shepherd's Bush, which is working class, but it's increasingly gentrified with BBC, etc., etc. So, um, London is really divided between East and West, rather than North and South. Uh, a divide, of course, very much shaped by class, but also, of course, shaped by uh, migration. So, uh, um, East London, with the docks, um, uh, being built in the uh, from 1800s down, uh, and of course uh, the major source of uh, trade, of course, was through the docks. Uh, meant that there were long-established uh, migrant communities. Um, in fact, of course, the story about the multicultural this, of course, become a, 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 a discourse of celebration. In Dickens' London, of course, it was the discourse of depravity and, and danger. Um, but um, in the literature, many people uh, nowadays, as I say, subvert this, uh, um, uh, this image of the dark, exotic, dangerous East by talking about it as a place of great uh, multicultural diversity, etc. Uh, and often the story begins with the uh, French Protestants in the uh, 17th century, the Huguenots, and then the story tracks through Irish Catholic migration and uh, Jewish uh, Poles and Russians late 19th century. Uh, and so the post-Second World War migration can be seen, obviously, very importantly, as part of a much longer history of immigration and religious presence. Um, and so Bangladesh and Islam Muslims in Tarahandlitz are part of uh, perhaps the more recent uh, stage of this longer history. Um, and of course, it's also, there's a history there, of course, these are very dynamic areas. Um, uh, people are moving in, but people are moving out. So you get this very interesting development of very strong communities that seem to be, in many respects, quite uh, internally bounded, very isolated in some respects. Uh, but of course, that's a, that's deceptive. Uh, they're very dynamic, and people are are moving into them and moving out of them. Um, and so there's been a long tradition, for obvious reasons of social mobility, etc., of people moving away. So um, Irish and Jews uh, before the Second World War. Uh, were already moving out, and of course the bombings, uh, the blitz, etc., encouraged that process. Uh, the uh, rebuilding after the Second World War also largely uh, emptied out the working class, the building of the new towns like Stevenage, uh, Wellington um, City, um, Crawley, etc., uh, led to a massive movement out of uh, the East End altogether, let alone across the East End. Um, and very interesting, of course, now Newham, uh, very much a deindustrialized area, uh, Newham next to Tower Hamlet. I've got a map here, but 
think that going east um, out towards South End, that wonderful place of, <laughs> of mud and uh, tourism. Anyway, um, and Newham, very interesting, went global, of course, with the uh, success of uh, London's applications for the Olympics. So the deindustrialised Lee Valley estate was, has been chosen for a massive infusion of global funding. Interesting enough, uh, driven often by um, Australian um, uh, engineers and firms who are obviously on the back of the success of the, the uh, Sydney Olympics uh, went to Beijing and then went to Athens and are now very much heavily involved, like land lease, for example, uh, in the development of this area. So it's a real global site. And of course, as we'll see, a very sensitive site because of that. Because cameras will be focusing on it and these you know, things will be beamed around the world. This is going to be an uh, absolutely very important area. So how to rebuild this deindustrialized area has become a key issue, of course. Okay, well, uh, just to uh, take you through the issue, uh, we'll now focus on this debates around mosques. Um, this is a very interesting uh, uh, example because um, it um, doesn't look like what many people think a mosque should look like, does it? Um, well, anyway, it was built by the French Protestants in the 1740s as a Calvinist chapel. Uh, then it was used by, uh, briefly, by a group trying to convert Jews to Christianity. Uh, then it became a Methodist chapel. And then in the 1890s it became a, a synagogue. And then as Jews moved away, it's redundant and now become bricklaying uh, mosque. Um, and under planning law, of course, uh, the, the exterior can't be changed. That's why it looks like what it, it is. It's uh, uh, a Calvinist chapel, very, very plain. Uh, but inside, um, there was a big hoo-ha about this in the 1980s. Uh, President Ershad from Bangladesh came and gave money for the interior to be refurbished and all the old panelling and everything got thrown out and caused a tremendous furore <coughs> amongst the conservationists who thought this was typical barbarism. Um, so you've got very interesting clashes of principles here. It's in a gentrified area, a conservation area. Um, but very recently there's been a, a, a plan to build something that's called a, not a minaret, but in fact it looks like a minaret. Uh, next door to it to kind of make it look more like a mosque. So it's a very interesting example of uh, when it's a mosque, a mosque, and the different types of, as you know, mosques around the world differ enormously. Um, but as I say, it's often referred to as a community mosque because they keep their head down, um, uh, they don't try and engage in, in po politics. Um, unlike um, this mosque, which fits the uh, often the Western view of what a mosque should look like, as we know, it's an Middle Eastern version of a mosque um, with a dome and minarets. Uh, this is the East London Mosque. Um, and it's very interesting because uh, it holds all kinds of classes, uh, like, uh, for example, funded by the local council, has very good relationships with the council, um, on, for example, countering drug addiction. Uh, it has a, a facilities for women. Uh, the previous mosque uh, doesn't encourage women. It's very much a male-dominated mosque. I um, haven't seen any woman go inside it. Um, and it was funded by Pakistani and Saudi money as well as by local people. So, um, and um, there's also been various television programs about it, more recently called Real Hula, about 
about whether it is a front for um, jihadists um, and al-Qaeda and all that stuff. So it's very hot propaganda. <coughs> Uh, made even hotter by uh, the London, uh, by the um, Muslim Council of Britain um, moving its headquarters, uh, Mohammed Bari, uh, is based there. And so they become a uh, truly uh, national, global centre. And uh, claiming very much to be the central mosque for East London. Uh, of course, mosques don't have that kind of organisation, but I think they're being driven, there's a certain degree of anglicisation, I think, uh, been driven to become more like the territorial parish uh, basis of Anglicanism, which is, again might do uh, like to talk about that a bit, a bit more later on. Okay, so that's the second example. Uh, the third example, uh, which is yet to develop, but this is the Abbey Mills. Sorry, start spelling. Abbey Mills Mosque, uh, Newham which is right next door to the Olympic Village. So it's right at the heart of the whole uh, global project. As you see in the background, that's the Millennium Dome, that wonderful disaster uh, to, uh, to the Millennium. Um, it occupies a former industrial uh, site that made uh, mustard gas bombs, so it's a highly polluted site. No one really wanted it. And the Tablik, uh, who had a, uh, still have a former synagogue into Hamlets, uh, bought the site about 10-15 years ago, I think, because no one wanted it. Uh, and then they obviously thought well, this was a great site to develop, just in time for the Olympics. So they put in an application to redevelop the site. Uh, the Tablik, for example, uh, sorry, the Tablik Jamaat, for those who don't know, um, is a, a missionary group uh, uh, with origins in, in <coughs> India. Uh, but they they engage in dawah, they engage in mission to uh, bring Muslims back to what they regard as the uh, true uh, observation of, of Islam. Uh, they very much emphasize their apolitical nature, they try and say we're not going to get involved in politics, but ironically they did get involved by politics, because obviously if you make this kind of um, application in such a highly sensitive area, uh, you're inevitably going to be um, deeply involved in the political arena. And as we'll see, they weren't really um, up to it. Okay, well, um, they, as you can see, it overlooks Dockland, uh, Manhattan in the Thames, on the Thames, that Margaret Thatcher wanted to see as the answer to the deindustrialized East End. So you see, it in all kinds of ways, it's an extremely strategic site. See, these are the um, low buildings that are used by the uh, at the moment for the temporary mosque. Anyway, so um, they put in an application. <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, design. It was uh, proposed by uh, a group of architects in Barcelona uh, who claim that they were Muslim. You know, so there's this kind of authenticity game. You know. Because I think the East, East London Mosque was designed by uh, not a Muslim, so you know, um, so there's all this issue about you know should people from the same faith design the buildings that we use? Uh, it doesn't look like a mosque, in like the East London Mosque does. Um, anyway, uh, this immediately got into a tremendous uh, local uh, furore uh, on the ground, for example, that it was. Uh, 
it would bring far too many Muslims into this area of London. It would dub the mega mosque. Uh, people uh, um, made all kinds of claims, uh, often deliberately inflated, but uh, clear, um, but anyway, it was going to uh, probably have accommodation, people, uh, estimates vary between 8,000 and 14,000. And people said, well, this is totally inappropriate to the locality, uh, all kinds of issues like the secular ones, like tra traffic, uh, noise, etc., etc. So there are a variety of secular um, planning uh, objections. But I think more interesting enough, it was more this notion of the area being swamped by the alien um, Muslim. Um, and of course then it got involved in local politics because there was a, a, a Christian party that, um, built on the lines of the Christian Democrats in continental Europe, Christian People's Alliance, uh, whose leader was a councillor, and he campaigned on the grounds that this was uh, non-Christian intrusion into um, our space, so you've got all these kinds of debates around the symbolism of landscape and who belonged uh, to the locality. Um, and it then became part of a global uh, debate because a website in Washington picked up the story uh, and this, this website is engaged in what they see as a global crusade against Islamism. So you can see how this local event you know, accelerated into a massive global uh, uh, discussion and debate. Um, anyway, of course, uh, they had to uh, go get planned permission. And so the, so the, um, the argument was, well, uh, if we get planned permission, that's fine. Uh, but clearly, uh, political opponents, including Muslims themselves, um, um, thousands of Muslims signed a petition saying this isn't what we want. So it wasn't just simply, you know, uh, nasty white Christians having a go at them. Uh, Many Muslims, of course, obviously didn't want this because uh, they were non tablighi so why should the Tablighi have such a, a fantastic site right next to a site that's going to appear in the Olympics? So you can see all kinds of internal divisions around this. Um, so eventually, uh, the planning commission was, was, uh, was refused. So the issue then, uh, and so really, therefore, we need to understand uh, why this was. Uh, well, I, I think uh, clearly one reason was that they were not able to play the secular planning game. I think the leadership uh, didn't have the skills. Um, they did employ a media uh, a firm in the West End to handle the, uh, the flak they were getting on the ground that they were somehow a cover for, uh, for terrorists. Um, but they were not able to kind of um, satisfy the secular planning um, objections. Um, and as we've seen here, of course, the basic terrorism. Um, and the last information I have, sorry, it's January 2010, um, the proposal uh, had failed. And so now the talk was of them being compulsory purchased, that they would purchase the site. And of course, this is in linked to a wider debate around the five year development plan, because obviously this is part of a much broader. Uh, development plan the council had with other councils, so they're effectively holding up the, the plan by not satisfying the, um, the planning regulations. But as I say, I think it wasn't just about planning regulations, I think it was also about this, these other issues that, um, which are where religion is integral to the political <coughs> arena. Anyway, I, I didn't want 
just this to be talking about moths, because otherwise you fall into the trap of, of well, of seeing moths um, and Muslims as, as a problem. Um, there are um, the issues are something generic, um, and they are about all kinds of mega projects uh, in. Um, in the suburbs, so it's part also about debates about suburbia, I think, and where religion plays uh, in that. Um, we assume that religion's okay in inner city areas, because you know, that's where you expect all these immigrants to be doing these things. But um, no, when people go out to the suburbs, the assumption is they will come gradually more secular, etc. Um, that's true in West London, I think, perhaps, but certainly not so true. So, um, I wanted also to remind ourselves of similar disputes uh, that engage with Hindu and Christian um, applications. And uh, this one concerns the uh, <coughs> Pentecostalist group. Um, uh, this, of course, again shaped by, as we know, Pentecostalism globally is um, expanding very rapidly across Africa, um, Latin America, Brazil, for example, Southeast Asia, etc., etc., Japan, Korea, etc. Um, in the London case, of course, it is bound up with immigration from African Caribbean. Um, and one of the key, um, most prominent groups is the KICC, the Kingsway International Christian Centre. Uh, with its strong London following. Uh, they too were also affected by the Olympics redevelopment. They had a site um, and were required to move from Hackney, which is uh, north of you know, next part north. Um, and they had to move out in two, September 2008. And so they put in a planning uh, application to move to uh, an industrial site further east in Havering Borough, further out in the eastern suburbs. And very often uh, um, groups uh, try to get into industrial estates because there's much more space, there's less problem, fewer residents around the place. But that doesn't mean they don't get into trouble in, in two hostilities, but uh, often there seems to be room for them to move, particularly with the, with the decline of industry in, in Britain generally. So this is their plan. Uh, this, of course, got dubbed the mega church. So again, we have the issue of inappropriate size. Uh, again, the issue of numbers. This is from a, um, a newspaper article on it. So talking about uh, reaction, you could take this much further, of course, <coughs> in it, but um, I don't have the time. Someone else might do that for PhD, I think. Um, Anyway, it was reported that this would be uh, 8,000 seater at the cost of 70 million. So, size and where did the money came, come from, of course, became crucial to this debate. Uh, furthermore, the issue of design became interesting, just like the Barcelona one. This was actually planned for Atlanta in Georgia. Um, so, as we'll see, people start saying, well, you know, what's an American style church doing in our backyard? So, for example, if we look at the Sunday Times reporting of the story in 2006, London to get 35 million megachurch, um, it reported immediately that they were going to get this US-style megachurch. 
uh, with all the mod cons that we did at Television Studio, and have uh, all kinds of things um, all state of the art. And Pastor Matthew Ashimalo, who is from Nigeria, uh, was the leader. And of course, he comes in for criticism as the story develops. So there we are. Um, so very interesting enough, immediately this whole issue of the Church of England comes in. Uh, the Church of England, the Liverpool Cathedral was also cited in the Newham Abbey Mills Mosque. Because they say, well, you know, it's larger than the largest cathedral in, uh, in England, so this isn't really, um, this is not right. Uh, poor old uh, Liverpool Cathedral, and they seat 3,000. And you know, what are these, Johnny Come very recently is doing? with an 8,000-seat stadium. It's just uh, totally ridiculous. Uh, and again, it has issues, of course, about the Bible Belt, alien, Americanization, uh, and of course, the numbers go up even further. They start saying, well, you know, maybe I've got up 18,000. Know, so the, the, the numbers game becomes very important uh, to uh, making people very concerned about this development. Uh, Um, and then, of course, to make it worse, um, the money was actually paid, some of the money that they have came from um, compensation. So it's actually the British taxpayer who is actually funding this uh, particular uh, group. Um, of course, they, they, they had a good, uh, they did well because of the height of the property boom. So they bought, they, they were bought out at, uh, at the right time. Uh, the London Development Agency was the one that paid and bought them out at the market price. So again the issue is, you know, this is unfair because it's the taxpayer who's actually paying for this particular group for its own particular things. Um, and then very interesting enough in this article, um, the whole issue of Pentecostalist message came through that uh, this is not the right kind of Christianity, this celebrates a kind of happy and successful health and wealth version of Christianity rather than the gloom and doom that we associate with uh, Easter and, and crucifixion, etc. So, uh, again, the kind of, uh, you can see the subtext that um, uh, people living in deprived areas um, don't want to be ripped off by these people who are profiting at their, their expense, uh, giving them false uh, hopes that they'll become you know, rich. Um, anyway, like the Abbey Mills uh, moth, it was turned down. And it was turned down on, uh, on um, uh, secular reasons. Uh, now because of local transport facilities, traffic, uh, strategic employment policy for the area, um, and again, the issue of scale. So these seem to be technically secular uh, um, uh, objections raised by the council. And we fit there for, if you like, the, the Baderian argument about um, secularization. But as I said, I think there's other things going on besides that, as we see in the local, dis, uh, local debates. Um, so on one of these websites, local people wrote in, um, and one of them said, well, very interestingly, Britain is a Christian country, yet we allow moths to go up in the name of multiculturalism, and the churches deny permission. So this person is writing defense of this, saying, well, this is actually uh, um, should have been uh, granted because um, uh, Britain is still a Christian country. There have been a business park, factory, cinema, even a nightclub, I imagine the outcome would have been somewhat different. So this fits into the notion of, of increasing secularism um, 
and multiculturalism that um, supports Muslims but doesn't support Christians. Uh, then someone else wrote in saying no, um, uh, if an application for a cinema and nightclub uh, had been put in, it would have been turned down. Uh, the Landers Club bought the public money to create jobs. Uh, KICC are not bringing nothing to this. So here we have a debate about these are outsiders, they're not actually going to help the locals. Um, in other words, it's a very rational uh, decision that has been made. There's interesting debates around who is, the, who is an insider, who is the outsider. These people are seen as, as in, inherently outsider and alien. Um, and this person started waxing lyrical about Raylan, which is not the most beautiful part of decent suburbs, um, and they see it as future doctrines, it's an interesting act of faith, a statement of faith, I suppose. Uh, but certainly it doesn't uh, uh, require a giant church of American proportions, as we are not in America. Um, so the whole issue of uh, inappropriate size. So small churches are fine, mega churches are not, um, and certainly not if they look American. It says what they propose is a want, not a need. Interesting uh, way of putting it. Okay, so uh, to wrap it up then, um, what does this uh, signify, I think? Um, well, of course, um, one of it is the usual thing of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Um, uh, I, I wrote a chapter in a, a book that came out in the mid-90s uh, comparing disputes around mosques between Western Europe and North America by, by Barbara Metcalf, a South Asian historian based in the United States. And uh, in that I looked at the debate around the Eastern Mosque compared with a Shia Muslim uh, proposal near Heathrow Airport. Um, and that had very similar uh, issues, so kind of interesting history, continuity here. Uh, but of course, um, uh, once the building went up, people got on with their lives. So you can overdo these, the intensity of these things. You know, uh, people may protest, but usually um, when the thing goes up, um, people say, okay, it's here now, and just let's get on with it. And uh, it's on the A40, so as you come into London, you'll see it. Um, just near um, the turn off for Southall on the left, and it's you, know, you wouldn't know there'd be such a hoo ha about it. But I think what it does is to give you a window into people's uh, insecurities and debates about um, who belongs where. I think that's the justification for doing it. And again, as, as I say, um, a justification for talking about the way that um, disputes are also about religious uh, issues, not just secular issues. Um, it's important to remind ourselves, uh, Richard Gale um, has, is the real expert on um, planning around mosques. Um, and his work in Birmingham uh, is, um, shows that in fact the Birmingham City Council um, uh, moved from a position of guardedness, even hostility, towards actually encouraging mosque development uh, as part of putting Birmingham on the map and building an image of Birmingham as a global city. I thought it was very interesting there, the discourse, the rhetoric about uh, Birmingham being a global city. <laughs>
different kinds of cities from London. So, uh, very interesting. So, so uh, particularly in areas that are deindustrialized, well, you know, at least these people are bringing in money, and they are reflecting the changing multicultural character of Paris. Uh, and so that that's that, um, so um, there's been a lot of encouragement. I don't I don't want to kind of emphasise these as places where everyone's united in hostility. Uh, a lot of people politically and in the planning architecture want these things to go up, even these mega churches and, and mosques, because they are real estate uh, buildings, and they're going to be there for a very long time, and they fit into multicultural policy. And of course, as I say, it reflects the awareness that Britain, of course, through deindustrialization, is moving from an industrial to post-industrial society. Uh, this fits very neatly. Um, I mean, what course, course what this shows, of course, is that these local struggles are very much linked to um, the global, the globalized struggle, so the local, global, global, Robinson coins the rather crude term, globalization. Uh, but um, other people talk about translocal, for example, uh, Pete Smith. But anyway, they're talking about this uh, intense uh, um, um, mediation uh, across different levels. Uh, but the, I think the uh, Olympics, of course, makes uh, London's uh, specific global multicultural complexity uh, very stark compared to Birmingham and other cities. So there's some specificity around London as a major global city, I would argue. Um, and as I say, this religious-secular divide is refracted through these disputes over grand religious pro projects. So it does fit the arguments that um, may not be post-secular, but certainly an engagement between the secular and the de-secular of increasing intensity uh, where global and local interweave. We also see, of course, that the state is still a major player. It hasn't gone away in these areas of planning law, uh, law uh, debates and changing landscape. They still play a very important role. And, of course, the importance of learning the laws of the planning game by those wishing to um, build these uh, statement buildings. And, of course, it shows a continuity that these secular debates are still important, traffic noise, parking jobs, etc. They are there, but they haven't gone away. But I think it's these, the symbols, the symbolic language, that's also important and very indicative. Um, particularly, I think this very interesting uh, debate about the Church of England still being an important player in people's imaginations, um, if not in their daily practice. Um, so, um, Anglicanism is still uh, closely linked to notions of the nation and how that is reflected through notions <coughs> of the local. So, how does the local link to the nation? Um, so Anglican still, I say, obtains a dominant position. And as I say before, the new religious groups are often seen through in relation to that church. So the more they conform towards the established church, the more that they're seen as okay. Uh, the less they are, the more people think, well, these are they're not really um, indigenous, indigenous, not they're not really insiders, they're just uh, exotic aliens that never fit. Um, hopefully, 
um, as we see the increasing ethnic and racial dynamics of contemporary cities, religious place-making takes there. Hopefully that's um, established. But I think in terms of the post-secular city, I think what we might be seeing uh, is a growing awareness of continuities with 19th century and early 20th century urban society. I think this is what's done. It's not just about presence, not just about sudden volcanic, well, volcanic eruptions, yes, this is what I'm saying, actually, isn't it? Um, I think the hegemony of the post-Second World War secular welfare state um, um, tended to blind people to these continuities. And as the secular welfare state has declined, as we know with government encouraging faith movements to come forward, encourage all kinds of voluntary organisations, NGOs, civil sites, etc., etc., uh, we're seeing uh, much more clearly um, the continuities, the survivors, if you like. They're always there, but uh, as, they, as I say, we're largely blinded to them by the dominance of, the, of secular welfareism. State, of course, uh, as I've argued, is still important, but clearly in some sectors, uh, like health and welfare, um, it is obviously take, uh, encouraging other people to come in. Um, and just going back to this debate around cosmopolitanism, um, uh, multiculturalism, uh, I was very interested in uh, an article by Craig Calhoun, who's um, based in New York and written very interesting stuff on nationalism. Um, and I was interested in his discussion of cosmopolitanism as um, relevant to this. And um, he raised a very interesting notion of translation um, uh, and how in the public sphere we have to translate across uh, cultural divides and, and, and histories. Um, and that uh, religious people aren't the only ones in this translation dialogue, if you like, that um, the non-religious, the secular, also must be involved in it. Um, if that's what cosmopolitanism means in today's conditions. Um, and he argues in the article, histories of mutual engagement produce both common understanding of citizens that are able to understand each other and not simply matters of translation or advances of reason. So it's not just a rational process, translation. Uh, it also involves particular histories that forge particular cultural connections and commonalities. So the history of London, the history of East London, uh, in this global context of uh, working with difference, um, where religion has become crucial to that process of translation, I think is uh, what this talk hopefully will have argued. Thank you.